This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. To anyone who is fortunate enough to live here in the Pacific Northwest knows just how important salmon are to our region, our economy, our environment, our cultural heritage. And you also probably know that salmon populations here are threatened. Their potential loss would have a devastating effect, not least on our struggling orca population, but most importantly on tribal nations in the Pacific Northwest whose lives and whose culture are inextricably linked to these fish populations. And one of the more important efforts to save the salmon is focused on breaching four dams on the Snake River. Governor Jay Inslee and Senator Patty Murray commissioned a draft report to study the impact of breaching the dams, and that report was released last week. And on that note, I will say that we have some very simple and effective calls to action on this issue uh, that we will be discussing at the end of the program, or if you would like, you can find them in the show notes right now. So here to discuss all of this is an exceptional panel. Emily Washines is an historian, educator, author, and member of the Yakima Nation Facilitating Equitable History Hello to you, my friend. How are you? I'm great. Well, we're glad that you're here. Dr. Helen Neville is the Senior Scientist for Trout Unlimited, performing research, science guidance, and public education on salmon and trout recovery. Dr. Neville, hello to you. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Brian Jones is a fourth-generation wheat grower, orchardist, and salmon recovery advocate. Brian, thank you for being here, my friend. Pleasure. Thank you very much. And finally, Mark Sullivan is Northwest Washington Coordinator for the Save Our Wild Salmon Coalition and formerly served as Director of Strategic and Power Supply Planning for Seattle City Light. Mark, welcome to you. How are you? Happy to be here. Well, we're ha- again, we're happy that all of you are here. So, you know, we're going to go in-depth with each of you uh, to, to kind of talk about your areas of expertise. But I do want to start with a big picture question with all of you, and that is why this issue matters. For people who are watching and listening right now, why should people engage with this issue? And Mark, I want to start with you, because you look at the situation from a number of different angles. Why should this issue issue matter to people? Let me start with a little bit of history and a few numbers. Once upon a time, by which I mean before there were Europeans and Euro-Americans in the neighborhood, uh, the Columbia River was the greatest salmon-producing river on the planet. Um, an estimated 10 to 16 million salmon and steelhead returned to the adult salmon and steelhead returned to the Columbia every year to spawn the next generation. Uh, we have a sadly depleted resource today. In most years, a little more than 800,000 wild fish returned to the entire Columbia Basin. Um, I will note that um, in the old days, although the Snake River contributes only 19% of the combined flow of the Columbia and the Snake where they meet near Pasco, the Snake contributed 50% of all of the Chinook and Steelhead in the entire Columbia Basin. Um, Today, as I said, we rarely see more than about 800,000 wild fish returning, which is about almost a 95% reduction in productivity. Even if we count hatchery fish, which for purposes of ascertaining which fish are uh, in danger of extinction, we don't, um, we're still about an 85% reduction from historic numbers. So over the last 42 years, the Bonneville Power Administration, the lead agents charged with recovering these species, has spent about $26 billion on fish and wildlife recovery costs. Most of that go into salmon and steelhead. The result has been that Five consecutive salmon recovery plans propounded by the the federal agencies have been rejected by the federal courts, 
and the salmon and the orcas that depend on them are now closer to being on a path to extinction than to path to, to recovery. As you noted, Stefan, these, these fish have been at the, the heart of Northwest ecosystems, culture, and livelihoods for millennia. And for that reason alone, it's imperative that we not let them continue the slide towards extinction. We can recover them, we can deliver a measure of justice to tribes, we can rebuild our commercial fishing industry, and, and we can invest in a more just and sustainable and equitable Northwest future. I, I think I, I'll leave it there. Well, you've touched on so much, and I really appreciate that, the diminishment of the fish and certainly all of the potential ripple effects that that will create. And we're going to drill down on that in a much more substantial matter uh, in, in moments here. Emily Washines, I'd like to turn to you. Why do you feel that people should care about preserving the salmon? Well, I agree with uh, what Mark was talking about. We basically want to stop the extinction of salmon and there's a high level of urgency uh, right now that's taking place um, because we're basically at this point where we can pivot away from the pathway of, of losing multiple species of fish and salmon um, that connect to, you know, now our neighbors' livelihoods, but since time immemorial have connected to tribal people's um, lives. And, you know, I think that's something that you and I are going to get into in great detail in just a moment. Uh, so uh, hold that thought, if you will. Dr. Helen Neville, uh, I know that you're going to have a lot to say on the ecological impact. Why else should people engage with this issue? You know, I think um, Mark, Mark laid out really well the context of why these salmon are so important ecologically um, and the past history and impacts on them and where we stand today with their extinction risk. Um, the only thing I would add, um, in addition to the cultural cultural aspects that Emily will, will be talking about, is that we are really at a, a pivotal moment. I think this is a, a historical um, sort of influx in what's going on with this issue. And um, we have an ability now to make a change that that hasn't really been presented in a, in a real way like it is today. Um, and I think we are at a point with the, the declines of these fish and where the fish stand today that not doing anything people need to recognize is also a choice. Um, these fish are declining. They are on the brink of extinction if we don't take true meaningful action that changes their trajectory and we have a choice to make do do we value uh these salmon in the snake river basin or are we willing not to do what needs to be done to save them in the future yeah it would seem and this is just from my standpoint as somebody who has come up to speed very very quickly on this issue that we do seem to be at an inflection point right right mm -hmm. here and a very very important one and then finally brian jones i will turn to you so we you and i are going to talk a lot about mitigating the impact on farmers um but zooming out why do you feel the average person uh, should engage with this issue you know i got involved with this issue to save sam uh, I thought it was an important issue. Uh, all the reasons that Mark has uh, mentioned and are very valuable and all the reasons that everybody has. But we also have to realize that here we have a species that just in the Columbia Basin may have had 26 billion fish, what was it, 16 million fish. We're feeding the highest reaches of the, of the Rocky Mountains. We're feeding the whole Pacific Ocean. Um, these creatures give up their bodies in so many different ways. And if we want to look at the health of the ecosystem, 
the Pacific and the Northwest and the Rockies, that's a big lot of fish. And it's a, just a huge number of animals that, are, uh, that depend, not only do humans depend on these animals, but other, many other sources of uh, other animals depend on these. So it, for that reason, that's why I got involved. Um, the reasons that I can talk about later, perhaps, are the fact that I can see an, an economic avenue of relief for agriculture and farmers in the Pacific Northwest that gives us a path forward that is an improvement than, from what we have today. And you come at that from a unique perspective, particularly that from your colleagues and your cohorts who are also fellow uh, wheat growers in, in the area. And so for that reason alone, I think your perspective is going to be enormously valuable and very, very engaging. And so everybody stay, please stay tuned for that. What we're going to do next is uh, talk with each of our panelists and, and really talk about uh, his or her unique perspective on this issue. And Emily Wachines, I, I definitely want to start with you. You, as I mentioned in the intro, are a member of the Yakima Tribal Nation, and you have noted that salmon are important both culturally and historically to tribes. So I want to start with you on history. Um, what should we know about the history of tribal nations with salmon? Yeah, so um, our relationship with salmon is one that's existed since time immemorial. We have a lot of our legends that connect to this fish and this species. And we continue to reference them in everything from, I mean, daily meal planning to, you know, our artwork. And you can see that reflected in beadwork and things that um, people wear even. Uh, and this is something that was uh, really expressed strongly at the treaty signing in 1855 in Walla Walla. Uh, tribes, uh, multiple tribes gathered there, one of the largest treaty councils in the nation, uh, gathered to uh, make sure to secure different rights, reserve different treaty rights, including the right to uh, fish um, in all usual and accustomed places. Um, this is one that we continue to have ceremonies associated with. For example, our funeral ceremonies are three days long, and we have to have our traditional foods there. That's the way that we honor our loved one. And sometimes when those resources are scarce, especially salmon, it's really hard. It, it feels like a literal impact on our ability to continue our culture. You're, you're talking about the cultural issue through the framework of history, and if you don't mind, I would like to just kind of back up on something that you said. The Treaty of 1855 with Yakima Nation was signed with the federal government. I don't think a lot of people are really aware of this, what it stipulated, and something that I think it's fair to point out, and this certainly is not the first time, the, the federal government is in breach of this contract. Am, am I right? Yeah, I think that a lot of people, when they hear a treaty, they think, oh, that's tribes. It's like, no, this was an agreement between our tribal nations and non-natives. So this is your treaty as well. And to be able to uphold the word to that is on both sides. So the fact that now we see, uh, you know, the territorial governor of 1855 that signed this treaty. And now we have Governor Inslee who's released this recent report. I think it's telling and maybe even a glimmer of hope about how we need to understand and maintain 
this, um, basically our word, what we signed, what our ancestors signed. My ancestor signed the Treaty of 1855. Um, and, you know, in Governor's uh, Inslee is the current um, person in that role uh, as his uh, 1800 signatory. I don't, the um, Governor Stevens um, uh, descendants, I don't know, are, I don't think they're public, but um, I do know and have met one of them. I, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll ask you something of an impossible question, just given the track record um, of federal relations with, with tribal nations. Are you optimistic about the way in which the federal government now is beginning to engage with tribes on this issue? I'm optimistic because I tend to just lean towards a we are the world vibe most days and most times. Um, I think that it does begin with, you know, conversations such as this and explaining things when you have stacks of reports and big, huge numbers and this big, huge sense of urgency. But, you know, you don't have a conversational sense of and pacing of what is possible. I think that you have to have that in order to have partnerships. You have to have a conversation with somebody. You have to be able to, you know, sit down and eat salmon and talk about salmon. I mean, that would be a great way to uh, engage in this process. So some of the cultural the cultural um, rituals that you were talking about earlier, it is my understanding that a lot of this has been passed down through tribal elders. And uh, there, I think, is an understanding about the interplay and interaction between the human culture and the, the culture of the environment in which we live. And I'm wondering, have any scientists or, or, or people who study this situation outside of the tribal nation um, come to, to speak with the tribes and especially with the, with the tribal elders? Yeah, tribal consultation is ongoing. I won't say that it's always at the place and pace that tribal uh, elders and nations want it to be, but it continues to be an ongoing part of the process. Um, with the federal government, they have uh, mitigation um, requirements that you basically say that they have to meet and certain things, and they they do try to make sure to protect the resources, cultural resources alongside the river, even that have been impacted as a result of the dams. Um, we basically had our villages inundated and, you know, a lot of our cultural um, and archaeological evidence of our longstanding relationship with the river just basically being erased and continued sites that we try to protect now that, you um, we have a sense of urgency of protecting, like we might not see that. My grandkids might not see that. I read, uh, it was a summation of the report that uh, stated that some burial grounds have been covered by the, the, the rising of the Snake River. Um, is that something that in the recession, people would be able to then go and uh, interact with, with these burial sites again, or is it just too late for that? Um, I think there's an ongoing assessment from different cultural resource programs from the tribes and when and if that information does get released, it might be held to a smaller group just because of the um, sensitivity around it. When there is um, remains that is discovered, oftentimes that's a private ceremony that's done and there's not a lot of um, communications and awareness about it. They just try to take care of it pretty quickly. You've talked about the tension here um, between tribal nations and uh, the federal government, other players, and uh, it is my understanding, well, certainly tribal members have a right to fish salmon, but I understand that you have cousins who have been physically threatened 
for uh, for doing so. Can you tell us about that situation? Yeah, I think that when you have a resource that people really start to love uh, alongside us, our neighbors, and then that resource becomes scarce, like the salmon, there can be a lot of uh, tension that results. And unfortunately, sometimes, I guess maybe it's human nature to want to like blame somebody or something or some group. And sometimes that's tribes, uh, tribal members. And, you know, we brought scientists to the stand and asked them, you know, out of all the different lists, the tribes don't even make the top 10 for why we have a scarce salmon resource right now. <laughs> and, the, the, you know, there's no biologist you can find of the land that will ever state that. Um, but when you look in the chat rooms, when you look at what's online, when you look at these contentious topics, it's often a, this is why we don't have fish is because tribe members are doing X, Y, Z. And so, you know, my cousins learned this lesson very early um, fishing and my aunt would look across the banks and see men following her children in their crosshairs. Mm. And it, it just is a representation. It's a visual representation of the cost that tribal members have had to bear as a result of trying to continue our way of life um, for, you know, since time immemorial, we, it's important for us to continue that, but there is, has been a cost. On a potentially happier note, I did read that the affiliated tribes of Northwest Indians have pointed out in the draft report that I referenced earlier that there would be numerous benefits uh, for the tribes if the dams were breached. I wonder if you could just lay out a, a few of those benefits as you see them. Yeah, it, being able to have the affiliated tribes of Northwest Indians, which is, you know, 60 different tribes, being able to move forward on an issue and support it is the unification that we need to show and demonstrate. Like all tribes agree, let's move forward on this. Um, and, you know, the benefits are restoring our fish, which includes salmon, includes our eel-like lamprey, um, and as referenced earlier by the other panelists, even extends to the orcas, you know, this ecosystem. How do we look at this Northwest ecosystem, not just what's in front of me and what's right here, but more broadly about what's being impacted? Um, and the Native youth also uh, spoke at that meeting. And I think that's a very powerful thing to go from elders to youth and elected officials about the Waikanushmi um, Wakishwit. Uh, which means the spirit of the salmon. We have a lot torn. <laughs> I will just leave it there, and I will thank you uh, for all of that. And I'll turn to you, Mark Sullivan, next. And one of your areas, as we established in the intro, was is in the area of energy. So I do want to get to that in a moment. But first, I'd like to talk to you and get a sense about the urgency of this situation and to ask you why it's imperative that we breach these dams now, say, from a political standpoint. Why does it make sense to push for this now? Well, as I suggested, the region has been kind of a gridlock over saving salmon for 20 years with a cycle of illegal and failed salmon recovery plans. But we think there's a moment of both the kind of biological urgency that, that Helen and, and Emily talked about, but also political urgency, because we have an unprecedented level of political leadership commitment to actually finding solutions and getting us all off this hamster wheel. Um, Senator Murray and Governor Inslee last May announced that they wanted to launch a process to develop a comprehensive plan to recover salmon and orca 
In October, they announced that they would deliver such a plan by July 31st of this year. At the same time, um, the U.S. government, the Biden-Harris administration, and the plaintiffs challenging the Trump administration's salmon recovery plan agreed to pause that litigation to allow time for settlement talks. So for the first time, political leaders are stepping up and saying, we want to solve this, we want to break the gridlock. And at the same time, we have unprecedented tribal leadership on this. Uh, the affiliated tribes of Northwest Indians have passed a couple of resolutions strongly calling for resolving this issue. Uh, Vice Chair Shannon Wheeler of the Nest First Tribe put it well when he said, we can no longer continue kicking the can down the road when we know that the road leads to extinction. So there's an unprecedented opportunity to actually get something done here. And I fear that if we don't seize it, uh, that opportunity may not come around until it's too late for the fish and the orcas. It does seem to be a window of opportunity here in every way that you describe. And I also want to point something out for listeners and audience members who are looking to take action on this. So it's my understanding that the dams themselves are owned, operated, and controlled by the federal government. So breaching them would have to be a federal initiative, right? And and therefore, that is where we would need to apply our pressure. Am I right in that? That's correct. They're uh, owned and operated by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and their power is marketed by the Bonneville Power Administration. One of the key arguments that we hear against removing these dams is that they generate electricity for the reason, uh, for the region rather. I wonder if you can speak to that and how that might be offset. Well, they do generate electricity, uh, but less than you might think. The nameplate capacity of these dams is three thousand, a little over three thousand megawatts, which is about enough to power three cities the size of Seattle. But because of when the river flows. Most of that power is produced when the region least needs it, that is in the spring. And so a number of studies have demonstrated that not only could we replace the lower snake dams, we could do so with a portfolio of resources that better fit the demand profile of the Bonneville Power Administration and its customers. And actually add value to the system by replacing the lower snake dams with a portfolio of clean resources like energy efficiency, demand management, wind wind and solar battery storage. So there's an opportunity here, not just a problem. As I mentioned at the top, the draft report commissioned by Senator Patty Murray and Governor Inslee was released on the cost and benefit of breaching these dams. And the price tag, which I'm afraid is getting most of the headlines right now, uh, says that it could be between 10 and $27 billion. I think it, during a time of what seems to be an oncoming recession and certainly a very high uh, uh, cost of, of living, this could prove to be politically tricky. How do you think we should look at this cost? Well, let me put it in context. Um, to begin with, the I, I think it's clear that the, the high end of that range is a gold-plated fantasy. And I would argue that even the low end of the range is probably too high. How do you but mean? Taking it, how so? Yeah. Uh, because of the declining cost of renewable resources, the the low end of that that range was estimated using a a four year old study, which itself drew on data on renewable resource costs from 2016, 2017. So the remarkable decline in the cost of those resources makes me think that we could actually do it for even less than the low end. But taking those at face value, first thing to note is that's 10 to 27 billion dollars over 50 years. It's not like we'd have to write an upfront check for all of that amount. Spread over 
that that number of years. We're looking at something more like 200 to 400 million dollars a year. What the report doesn't do is compare that to the economic cost of inaction. If we keep the dams in place, we have to pay for them as well. The Corps of Engineers estimates that currently costs about $151 million a year in O&M and ongoing capital costs to keep those dams running. Multiply that by 50 and you're up to $7.5 billion. That doesn't include the cost of replacing their aging turbine generators, another $600 million. $600 million. So now you're up to $8.1 billion just to keep the dams running. In addition to that, as I mentioned before, we spent $26 billion on fish and wildlife recovery. With the dams in place, it's clear that not only would those costs continue, they would probably escalate as in an attempt to make up for the, the damage done by the dams, more extensive and more expensive uh, fish and wildlife costs would also be required. And as I indicated, I think we can actually gain value from the transition to a, a, a different way to produce energy. I'm not alarmed by those figures. I will finally add that the four Northwest states combined have an annual gross state product of over a trillion dollars and growing. In that context, 10 to $27 billion spread out over 50 years. Well, I don't want to say it's a rounding error, but it's a rounding error. I see our superstar uh, executive producer, Cap uh, Pepkin, scribbling notes madly, which makes me think that we have some really wonderful talking points uh, based on everything that you have just said. So I thank you for all of that. Dr. Helen Neville, I'm going to turn to you next. Uh, you're a senior scientist for Trout Unlimited. So we do want to look at the scientific angle here. And uh, I think the place that I would like to start is for the layperson. And by layperson, I mean somebody like me. If you could just explain why breaching the dam is necessary to save the salmon? Well, the dams are a primary source of mortality and negative impacts on our populations. And um, you hear statistics sometimes about, you know, there's high survival over the dam, but that really does not reflect the, the comprehensive influence of these dams cumulatively as the fish pass over each dam and that gets ad added up over their migration, and then as they pass through these large, hot, and slow reservoirs um, where, you know, they're stressed from temperature, there's no food, they get nailed by infinite predators in those systems, and just the stress of passing through these dams over and over leads to additional mortality as they get into the ocean. Um, their, their migration time to the ocean used to be about two days, and now it's sometimes up to 20 days, so, you know, that is a huge impact on a fish who is going through a tremendous physiological change to prepare for salt water to, to have to be navigating all of this stress and mismatched timing and going into the ocean. So, I, you know, there's been decades and decades of study on this. And I think that's the main thing for me that is important for the public to understand is no matter, um, you know, what, what your background is or what the values are that you bring to this discussion, I, I think the public needs to understand that the science consistently demonstrates the need for restoring a free-flowing Snake River to reduce those impacts. There, there was research, large, comprehensive, collaborative groups involving 30 scientists in the 1990s that studied this issue. And at that time, in response to the declines um, and the listing of our fish, they concluded that dam removal was the surest way to provide a future for this fish. 
Since then, that finding has been reaffirmed continually by scores of scientists and other independent, collaborative, and peer-reviewed science studies that are still ongoing. And all of that work continues to show that dam removal is the most effective and most secure strategy we have um, for for restoring these populations. And we have so much data on the individual fate of fish that we get a real idea of how our populations are expected to respond to to removal as well. Yeah, you really opened my eyes when we were uh, having our, our, our pre-interview uh, preparing for this discussion today, uh, not least of which was just how stressful it is for these fish to make this trip. And also something that I hadn't considered, they have to adapt from fresh to brackish mm-hmm. to salt water, which must take an extraordinary toll on them. And so removing barriers of any sort, I think, uh, would very much be uh, in, in the favor of the fish. How critically endangered are the salmon, and how is that quantified? They are critically endangered. Uh, they are, well, they are, they are all listed on the Endangered Species Act, and they were listed throughout the 1990s in response to incredibly low abundances and declines in their returns after the dams went in. Um, and they measure this by there are certain abundance thresholds that are are set for each stock that must be met for delisting under the Endangered Species Act. Um, as Mark pointed out earlier, an important distinction is that that the, those thresholds are for wild fish only. So the hatchery fish in the system do not count at all toward the legal mandate um, for delisting these fish. But as, as was said earlier, you know, despite billions of dollars spent on recovering these fish, they still continue to be at, at risk of extinction. Um, our spring, summer Chinook salmon here in the Snake River have continued to decline and uh, dramatically. And in fact, as one example of the lack of progress in recovering that fish, the wild returns in 2021 were about 50% of the returns in 1992 when the fish were listed under the Endangered Species Act. So we're really at a critical point. And I think one of the most um, impactful and, and and useful things that has come out recently was a really jarring report by the Nez Perce tribes um, who, who monitor and manage the fish up here, a lot of them. Um, so they broke it out by populations in the Snake River and showed that 44% of our Snake River spring, summer Chinook are at or below what they call a quasi-extinction threshold. And that is a, a, a threshold of 50 returning spawners. Um, and, and that's an incredibly low number for these population and kind of hits the red line for where we have a hard time modeling the true risk of extinction, but know it could be imminent um, and where the fish are, are very much at risk without meaningful uh, and, and impactful action to change their trajectory. You and I had discussed a, a a spot of relatively good news. It was kind of a proof, a proof of concept of sorts. It is my understanding that two dams in the Elwha system mm-hmm. in the Olympic Peninsula have been breached. Can you tell us what the impact on the salmon population has been there? Yeah, the Elwha has really been amazing to watch. I mean, I, I would recommend anyone from your region who has a chance to get up there and learn more about the history of those dams and what was done to remove them has, you know, it's just a remarkable story. And the the recovery or the 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 response of fish in that system really demonstrates the incredible resilience of these fish. They are increasing in distribution throughout the system, you know, getting back into areas that they hadn't hadn't been in before, the anadromous forms. Um, they're increasing in abundance. And the amazing thing is they've started to re-express 
these life history strategies. So these different strategies that salmon and trout have and, uh, for dealing with their environment. You know, you know, salmon have these different ages that they go to sea, they spend different amounts of time in the sea, they return at different times, they have all these different strategies to deal with a very complex environment. And the amazing thing is that they've been to been able to re-express some of these life histories. So bull trout, for instance, have been isolated above the reservoirs, but are now beginning to express anadromy. So they are going to the ocean and back. And that's a really important strategy because that's why our salmon are so big as they go to the ocean and they feed and they put on fat and weight and then can come back and be much more productive. So bull trout are starting to do that now. And the other thing that has been really incredible is for the first time um, in over a hundred years since those dams went in, they have been seeing the reemergence of a summer of a real summer steelhead life history. Um, and much of it is it's it's not coming from fish from outside of the system. It is being re-expressed in the rainbow trout. So the fish, the rainbow trout forms that were above those dams isolated for over a hundred years are starting to re-express the ability to go to the ocean and back. And as you said earlier, the, the um, biological and physiological change that these fish have to undertake to do that is, is just incredible if you think about it. And so the fact that they can respond when given a chance to a free flowing river and take advantage of all that amazing habitat, have that strategy of going out to the ocean and growing much bigger, which makes them more productive and able to have more offspring when they return is, is truly amazing. Well, I, I'm kind of tempted to leave it there. I think that was a spot of quite good news in what has otherwise been uh, something of a, uh, I, I don't want to say that this has been a dark segment by any uh, means, but I, I do say that there are warning signs for all of us here. And so I think it's nice to see a little glimmer of hope. Finally, I want to talk with you, Brian Jones. You are a fourth generation wheat grower, orchardist, and salmon recovery advocate in eastern Washington. You are in favor of breaching the dams, which sets you apart from your cohort of other uh, uh, wheat growers, the, the Washington Association of Wheat Growers uh, vehemently opposes lowering or rather breaching the dams for reasons that you and I can get into in just a moment. But I'll just ask you, how did you come to be on this side of the issue? I have always, I guess, respected nature. I watched it disappear from the farm, the fourth generation farm that I still work on. Um, I've seen a dozen species that no longer exist here because of the type of work I do. I farm, I till the soil, I uh, use chemicals, I use a 22 as a, in my youth, and uh, a rifle to kill squirrels. And I've uh, we've seen many species disappear. Um, for some reason, in my background, I felt that it was important, and I regretted uh, having lost the species that I have. In 2006, I had the opportunity to uh, voice my concerns for salmon, and I understood their plight. Uh, and I thought, here's an opportunity that I can speak out as a farmer who cannot lose my method of shipping, but I can also, if I can work within the system, I can perhaps help save salmon but I'm also here to support farmers who need a way to ship grain. Let's be practical here. We aren't driving semi-trucks all the way to Portland. That's an argument that's used very often, and it's just not logical. 
Would you mind if we, I contextualize yeah, that? I, if, I, if I can just pause you for just a moment, I would love sure. to contextualize what you're saying here. So one of the big sticking points here for Washington wheat farmers is the transportation cost. Farmers currently use barges to transport their product. My understanding is that the barges are too large for a lowered river um, and that farmers are worried that the alternatives that you're talking about are costing more. So when you talk about uh, potential alternatives, what are some of the sorts of alternatives that you think of? The practical alternative is to bring rail back into the system and allow us to ship our grain via rail. This has a number of, of advantages in that currently I haul my grain 19 miles to the Snake River. I, If I could use rail, I could probably drive 8 miles. I could drive 12 miles um, and ship, drop my grain off there. Um, so that could be an advantage to many farmers in my region, and they wouldn't have to drive into the Snake River Canyon, which is a long grade downhill, and it takes a little more time. If the infrastructure structure was there, we'd be able to take advantage of that and move forward. We know that uh, you are in eastern Washington and that your connection is, is a little dicey, and so we'll, uh, we'll just thank listeners. And, and No, 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 it's no problem, and I, I understand, and we're just going to thank our, our listeners and viewers uh, for, for sticking with us on this. I will just ask you, uh, one other concern that I hear about is irrigation that comes from the dams. Um, I understand that there's a reservoir that provides water in the area. How big of a concern is this in your mind, and how can that be mitigated? There's only one reservoir that uses irrigation, and that's the Ice Harbor Dam Reservoir. Currently, um, the science that has been out there, much like much of the science that is, uh, been we've been using to support and save salmon and try to save salmon, the solution's fairly simple. We simply extend the pipes that draw the water deeper into the river and we pull from the river. It's not, It's that's been pretty well studied and figured out. So I'm going to now move to our closing question for all of you. Uh, but I first want to say that we do have calls to action for people to take on this. Um, and we'll get to those in just a moment. Uh, but just based on everything we've heard, I would like to hear from each of you how we best make the case for breaching the dams. And, you know, Brian, I want to stick with you on this because I know that you are in a unique position to speak with farmers uh, and, and really to kind of speak their language. How do you think that we can get your colleagues on board with lowering the dams? I want to paint it as a winning opportunity for agriculture. Let's face it, those dams are 50 years old. They, the infrastructure is very expensive. At the cost, at taxpayer dollars, we could build a new and better system using rail. Update infrastructure for not only wheat growers, but everybody else that might use rail and ship products uh, via rail. One of the other elements I'm going to touch on briefly is as a wheat farmer, if I raise a specific kind of wheat and I do a really good job of it, I want to get credit for that. And so I want to keep the identity of my wheat pure. Let's say it has a 13% protein or a uh, a high gluten content. By putting this wheat on rail, 
that wheat can be kept uh, isolated from all the other wheat when you put 120,000 metric tons of wheat on a barge, very seldom is that grain isolated. Um, rail would give us that opportunity. So you're saying that there's an advantage to putting the, the, the product on rail then? Absolutely. I see all kinds of advantages. And, I think agriculture could benefit from rail. And do you think that this is a message that uh, farmers would find receptive, be receptive to, rather? I think so. I think so. You know, we don't, we get charged to ship our grain to Portland, and we really don't care how it gets there. We just don't want to have to pay more um, to get it there. And rail is com can be competitive. Well, uh, Dr. Neville, I want to turn back to you. Um, sadly, we know that science does not win arguments or dictate policy. Uh, <laughs> I, I wish I lived in that world where it did. Um, from a scientist's perspective, how do you think we make the case that it is in the best interest of all to, uh, to breach these dams? Um, I think recognizing the situation we're in with the status of these fish, um, the incredible resilience, like I said, that they have and their ability to respond to this action to, to the great benefit of us all. Um, and the situation that, that Brian just so aptly pointed out that we, we have the ability to replace the power to our advantage, more strategically, we have the ability to do the same with the shipping. Um, all, all of those those things can be replaced, but what can't be replaced is salmon and the impacts they have on all of our lives, especially tribes. So um, I think, again, like I said very early on, we are just at such a pivotal and historic moment right now to make this change. Um, and, and as much as we can give our politicians our, our uh, voice and also our support in the hard, hard things they're doing and, and coming along with this, then that's incredibly important. Um, Emily, uh, Dr. Neville just mentioned tribes. What is the one thing that you would like people to take away from, from your perspective? Well, I think that when you have a plan that's with nature, especially things that tribes have known about nature and the land and management of that land, you tend to find things that are more cost efficient and effective. And I think, you know, this scary part of these big reports are these big, huge numbers, right? Like I see those numbers and I'm like, I've never managed 24 billion, but what we see- <laughs> Very few of us have. <laughs> spent trying to save salmon and it's just hasn't worked. So when we see this other number on this other part of it, it's like these, this is the same amount, but with no results. Do we spend this amount and maybe see actual a whole pivot and a resurgence and a supporting of the culture and upholding our word that we promised in 1855 when we gathered and said, you know, in order for other people to move here and live here, tribes need to, you know, move to reservations and still gather at usual and accustomed places. Um, and that's a promise that's continued to be cut into and limited. And we are, again, at this crucial point to be able to uphold those uh, promises of our ancestors. This could indeed be money well spent. Uh, absolutely. Mark, I'm going to give you the closing word. Why should people support uh, breaching the dams? You know, a number of years ago, Northwest born author Kim Egan in a book called The Good Rain defined the Pacific Northwest as any place the salmon can get to. By that standard, our region has been shrinking for over a century. 
And I think it's time to grow the region. And I've talked about the ways that we can do that by investing in a more just and equitable uh, future. Uh, I've suggested that um, it's not just a matter of replacing the services the dams provide, but of improving upon the services offered to farmers, to fishermen, to tribes, and to utilities. And I just, I, I want to share a quick story. Please. Brian and I were on a tour of the Lower Snake River last month, along with um, staff from congressional offices, from the Northwest uh, Governor's offices, and from the Yakima, Umatilla, and Nez Perce tribes, and salmon advocates. And in the course of that tour, I was talking to a member of the Nez Perce tribe about um, the treaties and fishing rights. And I observed at one point, well, there's no fishing if there's no fish. And he replied, there's no Nez Perce if there's no fish. And so I think it's important for non-tribal listeners to understand just how existential this issue is to our tribal nations. And as I said, as Emily has said, the obligation that we as citizens own a share of to do something about that. I'm really grateful that you worked in the Tim Egan quote. I had uh, uh, thought about it in places where it might fit in my presentation. It rolled off your tongue so beautifully, so thank you for that. Uh, we will close with our calls to action, and for that we will turn to our superstar executive producer, Kat Pipkin. Kat, over to you. Hey, well, as Mark and Stefan mentioned earlier, this is a federal project, and so the action's really simple on this. It needs to be directed at the people responsible for the federal project, and that means we need to comment on the report by July 11th, which is the deadline, and we need to direct those comments to Governor Inslee and Senator Murray. Two easy ways of doing that. The first is to go to the actual consultant site where the report is housed, and that's lsrdoptions.org, Lower Snake River Dam Options.org. They have a comment form there directly. They also give you instructions on how you can email in or mail in your comments if you prefer. The second way of doing this would be to go to the wild salmon site where they you can sign up for actions action alerts. They also have some suggested language you can use in your comments. So that's a terrific resource as well. And that is wildsalmon.org. And you would uh, get to it, um, uh, excuse me. Um, let's just roll that back. Hmm? And the second option would be to go to wildsalmon.org, where you can sign up for action alerts, and you can also submit a comment right there on their page. They also have, it's kind of nice, they have some suggested language you can use. Um, thirdly, uh, Don Miller with Snohomish County Indivisible has set up a specific group just for working on these actions. So if you or your group wants to like really take this on, if this is your jam, you can get involved by sending an email to snakeriverindivisible at gmail.com. All right, very good, and uh, you will find all of this information in the show notes, gang. Uh, I want to say a huge thank you to our guests, Emily Wachines, Brian Jones, Mark Sullivan, and Her Helen Neville, and of course, an exceptionally uh, heartfelt thank you to Don Miller and Naomi Dietrich, uh, especially to you, Don. You've done so much work on this, and, and I just, I, I'm in your debt, my friend. That will do it for today. Thank you to everybody for joining us. We'll see you next time.
And that'll do it for this week. If you would like to see a video of this or any of our programming, head to facebook.com slash indivisiblepodcast. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org and the email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at indivisiblepod. The executive producer of the show is Kat Pipkin and thanks as always to Lori Caldwell. My thanks as well to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.